Hi there, welcome along to High Performance, our gift to you for free every week. This is the podcast that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So today, allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs to be your teacher. And you join us for a significant episode in High Performance because for the very first time, we bring you an episode recorded as part of our live tour. Just a few days ago, we were on stage in front of hundreds of people in Edinburgh. Thanks for coming along, everyone. It was a brilliant night, wasn't it? It was night three of our little four-night tour. It's been so amazing over the last few weeks to meet thousands of people that are listening to the High Performance Podcast. I just want to say thank you to Plio. Uh, check out Plio.io. They help over 20,000 customers across Europe to run their businesses. So if you run your own business, Plio.io is well worth looking at. And we've got one night left on the tour. We're going to be at the O2. We're going to be there in March. I'm afraid to say we've already sold out. Sounds weird, doesn't it, to say we've sold out the O2, but we have. But the good news is we're going to come on tour again late 2022, so keep on looking out for dates. Anyway, we were on stage in Edinburgh. We were joined by an amazing guest, and this is the kind of stuff that we discussed. And the character they showed in the last 10 minutes, making saves, blocking shots, getting back to cover for a mate, everybody dying to make sure we got that result. I said, that's how you build a team. As long as I know, I can go to my bed every night and say, I'm doing the right job, I'm trying to do the right things, I'm trying to be good at what I do, and I've got the love and support of my family. That's enough for me. In terms of world-class basics, yeah, I suppose it comes down to the sort of perfect practice makes perfect. Not practice makes perfect. That was what I was always told, was perfect practice makes perfect. Don't play with the fear of failure. Try to play with the anticipation of success. So today we bring you a man who has a huge job on his hands, Steve Clark. He's the Scotland football manager. He's about to face a huge couple of playoff matches in just a few weeks' time. Quite simply, the whole nation is holding its breath, waiting for Steve and his Scotland players to deliver. So how does it feel having the weight of a nation on your shoulders? How does it feel when you're perhaps underappreciated in your industry? How does it feel when you deliver a club's greatest ever finish in the Premier League and and a few months later, you lose your job. How does it feel when you're out of work? And how does it feel when the decisions that you're making are going to be scrutinized to the nth degree and you still have to make the decision you believe in rather than the decision that's going to make people happy? Once again, this might be an interview with a football manager at the absolute top of his game trying to qualify his nation for a World Cup. But it's not really a conversation about football at all. It's a conversation about life and the episode with Steve Clark comes next. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Edinburgh. Our special guest this evening is Steve Clark. Well, this is different. <laughs> do you do you enjoy this kind of thing? No. I'm absolutely terrified. So let's crack on. <laughs> well, uh, you know how we start this podcast. In your mind, what is high performance? I told you when you first tried to get me to come on and do this, and it wasn't for this live show, it was for one of the recorded ones that I didn't have a clue. So I gave a little bit of thought. The best I could come up with was a pathway to success, but probably the pathway is not really defined. So you have to find your own way down the path. And success is never defined either, because success, success is not always lifting up a big silver trophy. Success is, is measured in different, different types. So in football, for example, success when I went to West Brom was to keep them in the English Premier League. We did that successfully. The following season, when I had a little bad run, four games, sacked, welcome to football. Uh, that was my first managerial job. So, yeah, pathway to success. And you've got to look for all the, the high performance along the way to try and get to that level of success that you want to have. So can we talk about the pathway, where it started from, Steve? Because I know you grew up on, on the Ayrshire coast. And what your story fascinates is that you didn't get into football till relatively late. Would you tell us a bit about your journey before you got into football? No, no, I was, listen, I was always into football. In Scotland, it was, when I was growing up, it was, it was football or nothing. That's, that's what you did, football or fighting, maybe, to, to steal a quote for Darrow. Came from a big family. Uh, my brother was a footballer, professionally. Uh, my young brother wasn't quite good enough to be professional, but had a decent footballing career. My father was... A good amateur player, got a really bad injury when he was young, so never made it to the, the top. He always wanted his boys to play football. But more than that, he wanted us to be successful, ambitious. And at that time, football didn't make any money, no money. So when I left school, at, I was told to leave school at 16. Wasn't going to university, none of that. You're going to get a trade, son. So off to beat jumps, pharmaceuticals, to be an electrician. Turn me down. <laughs> My dad was delighted with that. Uh, but they did offer me a, a position as an instrument artificer. But don't ask me what the second part means. You still don't know? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. I, I call it instrument technician now. It's, it, it's basically what I trained as. So I trained for four years. 
16, leaving school, going into a factory environment, you soon grow up quite quick. You know, you're working with wise old men who are always looking to take the, the piss out the the young apprentice. So you, you grow up quick. It was a good was a good learning experience. Obviously, the football career picked up a little bit. I got picked up by St. Marno on schoolboy form and then provisional form, which is a sort of in-between before you become professional. I got farmed out to play in the, the Ayrshire Junior League, which also toughens you up. Uh, young boys, 16, 17, playing against seasoned hardened criminals, I would call them. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned how to look after myself. Uh, and obviously, 18, I was offered a part-time contract with St. Man. So what lessons did you learn, say, going into a factory at 16 or playing in that Ayrshire League that you were still applying when you did end up going to Chelsea and, and going on to play at, at, at sort of an elite level? You just pick up the, the experience of all these people that you work with. The, the, the factory is a different environment to a, to a football dressing room. It's totally different, but you get similar characters. They're there, they're always testing you, you're always being tested as a young person in there. Can you do this? Do you do that? They're always looking for you to make a mistake, to see how you react to the mistake. You get the ones who try and bully you, and then you have to stand up to them. You have to recognise that you that they're trying to bully you. Uh, you get the ones that will help you and look and go out their way to help you. I met a lot of good, really good people in the factory. And then in the junior football, you, you get similar lessons. You, you get the same idea. You get, you get people who look after you because they, they see your talent. They see you as a young person. I also had my uncle when I was playing in the junior leagues, played in the same team, looked after me. Uh, not physically because he wasn't quite as tough as me. Uh, but... You just learn from these people and you, and you try to take those values in. I, th I think all of them wanted you to be honest and straightforward. These people just want to be normal. They just want you to be normal. They want you to go and do your work. Don't get above your station. And if you did get above your station, they knocked your head off. So it was a, it was a good way to, to grow up in a, a good learning environment for me. And how does that compare to the environment that you want to now create as a coach or you do create as a coach? Can you see the parallels between the two, particularly when it comes to... I like honesty, to honesty. In, the, in, the, yeah. in the dressing room. I like honesty in the, the people that I work with, right through from, from the staff, right through into the, the, the players. How do you foster that? I, th I think by example. You try and be as honest as you can be yourself. Sometimes uh, football management, it's not so easy to be completely honest but you have to be as honest as you can be. Can you explain that for us, why it's not easy? I think club management is, is different from the, the job I'm doing now, national team management, because you just borrow the players. So you borrow the players for, for the national team. They're not really your players. And it's a little bit easier. You bring them in, you ask them to... They're there to represent their country. They all want to be there. I, th I think that's one of the things that we've, we've managed to to bring back into the, the national team. It's a little bit of pride to be picked for the national team and, and go and play for them now. When you're in a club environment, you have more time with them. You, you can work with them daily. You're there all the time. So you can drip feed those values in all the time. You can, you can, you can smell something in the dressing room. I, I, I don't know. It's, there's nothing written down. There's nothing written down in a bit of paper that says, look for this or look for that. You can just, with experience, you start to smell the situation, you think, okay, I need to have a word with those two players. They're constantly at each other and you're trying to get them before it becomes a fight on the training pitch. Sometimes 
it's the fight on the training pitch. And then you have to deal with that. But you, you try to preempt that. You try to read the situations. And then you're just asking them to respect each other. Uh, I think respect in football goes a long way. If, if your players within the squad respect each other, I think you've got a chance. The behaviour of, of honesty, though, fascinates me because when you talk about in a club environment, you've got young people now that are being richly rewarded at a young age that maybe don't share some of the values you learn in that factory or that football environment in Ayrshire. So you're dealing with people with big egos maybe that get easily bruised. So how do you be honest with them knowing that they've got an entourage behind them that might tell them the opposite? You just have to lay it on the line. If you've got something to say to somebody, you're talking about honesty. If I've got something I want to say to somebody, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hedge my bets. I'm not going to soft soap it a little bit. I'm not going to hide from the issue. The issue has to be dealt with. But you also have to understand that they're also human beings. So you don't want to, you don't want to upset them because you're going to need them. Maybe it's a player that you're leaving out of the team. You have to give them the, the reason why they're out of the team. You have to explain the reason why. They might not accept it, but they're more likely to accept it if you're honest with them. If you tell someone, I'm leaving you out because you didn't do X, Y, and Z, so I'll leave you out of the team this week. And they'll argue, well, the guy you're putting in the team, he doesn't do X, Y, and Z either. I say, yeah, but he does X and Y better than you. And that's why he's playing next week. And they might not like that explanation because it's not clear to them but they'll accept it because you've been honest. Hopefully. You have such a limited time, though, with these players compared to their club managers. So what do you do to put into place the process to let them know, as soon as they arrive with the Scotland team, what the culture is like, what the expectation levels are, what your standards are? Because you don't have weeks and weeks and weeks to build these players up. You don't, but over a, over a number of camps, you start to, you start to drip feed it in. It, it, listen, it wasn't an easy start. We had Cyprus at... Home was my first game, Cyprus at Hamden. It was easy, we'll win that one. Last minute goal. Just made it. <laughs> and then after that, we backed it up with a, a game against Belgium, Russia, and we got absolutely scudded. Is <laughs> the reality. And I'm looking at this group of players who'd been there before and they had a long period of failure, failure, failure. We didn't qualify for this, didn't do that. And you're thinking, I need to find a way to change the culture, the environment, how do I do it? Moscow 4-0 was probably the lowest point of my reign. And I started to question myself a little bit and I'm thinking, what are we going to do? And I told the players that that was unacceptable. It was, it's probably the only time where I've lost my temper with the, with, with the players because they're not your players and you don't want to upset them and you don't want to, you don't want to have a go at them because it's difficult to repair that because you don't have the time that you have at a club. But I was angry, and we managed to win the next game. And I got away from that one, and I'm thinking, okay, we've got two games, two games left, but I need to find a way to change this losing mentality where we just turn up, we get beat, we get knocked out, and we go to the next tournament, and the manager gets sacked. I didn't want to get sacked. I wanted to hang around a little bit longer because I felt I had something to offer. But between the November and the March, I'd already started thinking, what are we going to do? What are we good at? Defensively, not great. We need to change. I phoned my coaches. So we can't go back four. I want to go with a back three. I never coached a back three in my life. Change for me, challenge for me, challenge for my coaches. The personnel we had, we had probably two of the best left backs in world football. 
Tierney and Robertson. Got to get them both in the same team. At that moment, I didn't think the, the centre-back options were great. So let's pick three. <laughs> Three's better we'll than We'll see two. if that makes it better. Yeah. But my idea on, on the centre-backs was obviously to play Tierney as one of them. And I had this mad idea that Scott McTominay could play the other one. We were strong in midfield. I had good midfield players and I wanted to get at least three midfield players, possibly four into the team, which is how I started. I did fit four in. Nothing up front, really. Nothing great up front. We had one or two. But <laughs> I'm not trying to knock the boys down. The boys that were turning up were doing everything they could to be, to be successful for us, but I needed to find a striker. Fortunately, I found an Australian one. <laughs> <laughs> So I knew that, I knew that Lyndon was, was available to come. Uh, so I managed to have a conversation with Lyndon that persuaded him to come. I had a really good conversation with Kieran Tierney to tell him that he was going to be the best left centre-back Scotland had ever had. Can you, can you give us a bit of insight into how that conversation went? Because this is always interesting. For people here that don't work in football, it's about what can they learn for bringing people on the journey with them? How did you get Kieran on the journey? Kieran had always a sort of myth had built up around Kieran that he didn't want to come and play with the national team, which wasn't correct. But I think he always felt that he was a better left-back than Andy Robertson. Every player always thinks they're better than the, the immediate competition. And if you look at the two of them, there's, the, there's not a cigarette paper between them. They're, they're both fantastic players. So my job on, on, on that one was to persuade Kieran that he was better than Andy. And that's why I trusted Kieran to play less centre-back and not Andy. Now, that's not, it's probably not strictly true. But I had to sell it to Kieran. This is, this is where I see you playing. And I'm not telling you you're a defensive centre-back. Now, we've got the best overlapping left centre-back in world football, probably, because Kieran just goes. And I'm standing on the side pitch going, Kieran, where are you going? <laughs> but it works. It works. It works well. So, so was to sell that position to Kieran was important. And it was, a, it was a really good conversation. He asked a lot of really good questions. But I told him I loved him and I wanted him to play there. And the conversation with Lyndon Dykes was quite straightforward. I said to Lyndon, listen, I don't know if you feel Scottish or Australian. I said, only you can decide. I said, I'm telling you, this is what we have in the national team. This is what's in front of you. This, this is your competition. But you have to decide if you want to play for Scotland or you want to play for Australia because I can't, I can't see inside your, in your mind, I can't see inside your body how you feel. And he, he phoned me back and he said, no, nah, I'm Scottish, my, uh, my wife's Scottish, my daughter's Scottish, and I want to play for the national team. And I think everyone would agree he's, he's done quite well for us. Yes, brilliant. But, but, but it's two different conversations. Yeah. So it's, it's a conversation where you're trying to sell a position to someone, and the other conversation is you know you want to say to Dykes, Dykes, you know you're Scottish, come on. <laughs> but you have to let them make the decision. Steve, can I take you back to a period of time where you described briefly that game in Moscow? Because I think everybody here has had their own share of failures or setbacks or disappointments. And I'm intrigued as, what sort of questions were you asking yourself to process that frustration you felt to be able to then put yourself in a position of coming at it and embracing change and doing something different? Preparation. What was I doing, what was I doing wrong? I blame myself. 
I was picking the I was picking the squad, I was picking the team, I was picking the tactics. And I'm saying I'm doing something wrong. Right. And I couldn't quite work out what it was. But you're looking at it and then you, you get that little period. It's, it's not a little period, it's a long period from the end of November to March. It's a long time to, to sit and think. And it was, we need to reset. And the reset was to change the formation, was to change the system. And was also to change the way that I worked with the teams because I was trying to fit in how I worked at a club. You have your own method, you have your own procedures, how you work through the week. And you, you try and put in certain training elements across. And I was trying to put this into the, the national team boys, but I was only getting maybe one decent training session. So the national team, is they play at the weekend with their club. They come, they recover for two days. You might get a day's training, and then you're playing a match. You might get two days training if you're really lucky. So you weren't getting a lot of time on the training pitch and I was trying to, I think I was trying to squeeze too much in and I thought I've got to simplify this, I've got to just break it down and say look, there's your recovery, there's your tactics, there's your team meeting, there's the game. Did it work straight away? Probably not. We played Czech Republic away but it was a Czech Republic league select because they'd been ravaged with Covid. The Scottish media thought we should go there and win 6-7-0. Uh, we didn't, we, we managed to beat them. 2-1, lucky, hanging on at the end, and really hanging on at the end. And we came in after that game and everybody was sitting in the dressing room like, and I'm saying, guys, we, we won the game. And the character that they showed in the last 10 minutes, making saves, blocking shots, getting back to cover for their mate, everybody dying to make sure we got that result. I said, that's how you build a team. And the captain was on the same page, Andy Robertson was on the same page, that's how you build a team performance. And then I spoke to some of the senior boys about the system because I wasn't convinced that they were buying into it. And every one of them told me, now we like it. We feel good. It's the most comfortable we've felt on the pitch for a long time. We think it'll work. Brilliant. And we stuck with it. And now that's their team system and that's their shape. And, and I think the, the little bit of success we've had grew from there. I'm really interested to know what the likes of uh, a Robertson or a McGinn brings to that Scotland dressing room. Not just as great footballers, but what do they bring as people? Personality, especially McGinn. I, th I think the boys who play in the English Premier League, they bring an assuredness to the squad, a confidence. Andy Robertson's won the Champions League. He's been club world champion. He brings an assuredness to the, to the squad. Kieran Tierney's down there playing now. Scott McTominay's not shy of confidence, plays at Man United. You see his performances every week. He's on that pitch, he, he puffs out his chest. And they bring an assuredness to the squad that everyone else buys into. You've got the captain of Celtic. You've got a future captain at Arsenal. Captain Andy playing at Liverpool. You've got McTominay could be a captain at Man United. You've got McGinn could be a captain anywhere. So you, you've got leaders. You've got people like Grant Hanley, captain of Norwich, as you well know. So we've got so many good people in the squad and I, I think that has also been a process of trying to get good people in, trying to sell the idea that we can be successful. We can be successful. You've got to get that over well, to them. Yes, <laughs> come on, you've got to believe. But this is like, see, I think that reaction though, even that reaction is really interesting because I think if you're in 
London and Gareth Southgate says, yeah, we can be successful straight away. Everyone's like, yes, we can be successful. Here, there's still a hesitancy. There's still a, okay, maybe. Like, it seems that it's still a process unpicking all of those previous years, as you describe, trying to qualify, not qualifying, sacking the manager, then doing it again and repeating. And there was always great players. Scotland's always had great players. I'd love to know psychologically, A, how deep-rooted was that mindset of, well, we don't qualify, we just play qualifying matches. And how, whether you underestimated actually, how deep that went and how hard you had to work to recover from it. I definitely underestimated it. And it was something we had to shake. But we shook it in the, the, probably the most Scottish way that you could. Because in the playoff final against Serbia, I thought we were magnificent for 90 minutes and then in injury time. So you're 1-0 up and you're thinking, one more corner. Just, come on, lads, just defend it. <laughs> nah, nah, we'll concede the goal. So we'll go 1-1 and you're thinking, oh my God, here we go again. Scotland, glorious failures. Because the performance from, from the first minute to the 90th minute before we conceded, I thought was as good as anything that that I'd seen in a, a long time for a Scottish team going away to a, a difficult opponent in Serbia. And you're on the sideline, you're thinking, oh no, surely not again, surely. Because I don't think we could have recovered for the hurt of that if we hadn't, if we hadn't qualified. I certainly couldn't have recovered for the hurt of that because I knew how close we were and how well we'd played. And then you go for that. And I remember saying to them, the last thing I said to them before that, there was 28 people in the room. I said, there's only one person in this room who's ever been to a major final w with his country. I said, unfortunately, it's not Scottish. It was Stephen Reid, who'd been there at the World Cup with Ireland as a player. I said, this is your chance to go and do it. I said, but don't burden yourself with what's happened before because we cannot affect what's happened before. And the last thing I said to them was, don't play with the fear of failure. Try to play with the anticipation of success. And I think we did that up until that, f <laughs> up until that goal. And then after that, we just hung on and we clung on. But obviously, you could see the goal in the last minute. One one, you come together, the group. And I was worried for them. And then you start to hear the voices, your Robertsons. Your McGinn was off the pitch at the time, but in the group around Kenny McLean, Ryan Jack, Callum McGregor, and there was a determination. We're still in the competition. We've still got a chance to go through. Let's make sure next 30 minutes we give everything on the pitch and we get there. Okay, we had to go to penalties. It was a bit nerve-wracking, but that desire was still there. So as a coach, I'm thinking, we're all right. I didn't need to say too much. Really? They did it. They were, we've come so far. Don't mess it up now, guys. But how did you learn to step out of your own way there? Because I can imagine at that moment, there's a danger of your ego kicking in of, I need to come in and deliver a great speech and get them fired up. And yet you've described that you actually stepped out of the way. I didn't need to, I didn't need to be there. You, you know your group, you know your players, you know what they're thinking, you know the journey they've been on and you know how determined they were to be successful. And it didn't need a big speech. It was keep it simple, keep the bases, don't make mistakes, stay in the game. And we did that. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So when we, were, when we were talking in the first half an hour and we mentioned world-class basics, did that ring a bell with you? I think if you get the basics right, you've got the foundation to do anything you want. I'd never thought about world-class basics, but I think football's a really simple game. And if you do get the basics right and you've got good talent, then you have a chance to be successful. But if you don't get the basics right, everything falls apart. So in terms of world-class basics, yeah, I suppose it comes down to the sort of perfect practice makes perfect. Not practice makes perfect. That was what I was always told, was perfect practice makes perfect. You've coached alongside some, some quite stellar names, whether it's Ruud Hullet or you worked with Mourinho uh, in his first spell at Bobby Chelsea. Robson, Sir Bobby Robson. Sir Bobby Robson. Kenny. So tell us then, Kenny. what was yeah. the consistent... What was the consistent traits that you saw in those guys that, that we could learn from? The top three? Top three, Mourinho organisation, uh, attention to detail, Kenny man management, Bobby Robson man management, for sure, was, was probably one of the best in terms of man management. Bobby, not, not someone you'd look at his coaching sessions and go, wow, I want to copy that. But when he spoke to a player and you were in the room and you listened to him, you got emotional or you got excited for the player that he was talking to. Can you remember a time when you sat there and heard a conversation and thought, this is, this is amazing, this is something that I need to learn from? Yeah, early with Bobby was obviously rude, had been at Newcastle just over a year. Uh, it didn't work out. He persuaded me to leave my, my London home, move up to the northeast, uprooted my family, took them all up, and then one year later he... He was scribbling a, a note after a game. He said, what are you doing, lovely boy? Which is what everybody called, lovely boy. I'm just writing a, writing a note. It was his resignation, but he didn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Woke up the next morning, he left. Uh, thanks, Rude. And a lot of his issues up there had stemmed from the fact that him and Alan Shearer, two big egos, didn't quite get on. Best of mates now, by the way. They're, they're both working in the media and they love each other. But at that time, nothing was every day, every day was difficult 
So we didn't get the best out of Alan. Rude couldn't get the best out of him. And Bobby came in. And I remember Bobby said, I'm going to have a chat with Alan tonight, son. Before we played, we were actually back at Chelsea. So we were at Chelsea Harbour Hotel. And he brought Alan into the room. And honest to God, he made the guy feel 10 feet tall. I felt 10 feet tall for Alan. It's <laughs> it unbelievable. You're going to be the main man. You are the main man. Hasn't worked out for you. You're a goal scorer, son. You're going to be the lead the line. You're number nine at Newcastle. He went through Jackie Melbourne, all, this, all the great number nines that played at Newcastle. You are the man. Out the next day, lost one nil at Chelsea. <laughs> Never scored. Hardly got a kick. Chelsea were, Chelsea were better than us. Next week, home to Sheffield Wednesday, 8-0. Shearer, four goals. And from there, Shearer was back. And that was just on the, on the back of one really good conversation from somebody who knew how to massage an ego and make someone feel good about themselves again and make someone feel really important. And that was a big lesson. So here's a question then. You work with all these amazing colleagues, the Hullets and the Zolas and the, the Bobbies and, and everything. You have this brilliant stellar football career at a time when it's not easy to uproot and head to London and play over 400 games for Chelsea. And then in your management career, you've had, what was that time, the, the best ever finish in the Premier League for West Brom, eighth in the Premier League. You were Reading and Fulham came calling. You then came up to Scotland and you were doing brilliant in club management. You take over the national team, you take them to a tournament, you change the mentality of Scottish football. And we want, obviously, total honesty on this stage because this is what this is about. Do you feel you get the credit you deserve for the management career that you've had? I'm not sure I changed the mentality of Scottish football. It wasn't me. I think you helped. It was my team. It was the team on the pitch, the, the players, the, the, the supporters engage with the players, not me, I'm very difficult to engage with. <laughs> but the question remains, <laughs> do you think you get the credit that you deserve? I don't look for credit. It, it, it doesn't bother me. And people look at you and say, listen, everybody likes to be loved. Everybody likes to be appreciated. But if the credit doesn't come, it doesn't come. I can live with that. As long as I know, I can go to my bed every night and say, I'm doing the right job. I'm trying to do the right things. I'm trying to be good at what I do. And I've got the love and support of my family. That's enough for me. Lovely. But notwithstanding all of that, <laughs> I look at, you know, a really good example, I think, of where many of us would choose not to be football managers is that amazing eighth place in the Premier League for West Brom and fired four months later. Do you not allow ever a sense of injustice to build up or do you have to learn to accept that that is the life of a manager? That was my first second. And they say you're not really a manager till you get sacked. So I was a manager after that. But I'd also prepared, when I was coming towards the end of my, my playing career, and I played in a time where you didn't finish as a millionaire, you didn't finish with loads of money, you just had a good living wage, if you saved a little bit you could have a nice little pension, you were going to have to go and get another job. I was fortunate that I managed to stay in football. And then from there, did I feel, I felt a little bit aggrieved that I'd lost my job at West Brom. Did I deserve to lose my job? Probably not. 
we went to Cardiff, uh, lost 1-0, and you're driving back in the bus to the training ground, uh, no phone call for the director of football, no phone call for the chairman, no, no phone call from anybody. You're driving back and you think, they're obviously not very happy with me. You drive into the training ground and you see the, the light on in the chairman's office and you just go, bye-bye, <laughs> see you lads. <laughs> So can we ask from a different angle then about, because you obviously interview well to get jobs, so we've spoken about when you've lost the job. Will you tell us about the process of how you convince the chairman or the owner of a club or director of football to buy into your vision and to entrust you with the keys to that dressing room? The, the process is quite simple. You, you just sit down and you, you be yourself. I don't do presentations. I just sit down, I tell them what my ideas are, what I think. I can bring to the football club and then I let them choose. And I haven't had that many managerial jobs. I mean, it was, was West Brom, was Reading for a year. I lost the job at Reading because I made a mistake of speaking to Fulham and then staying at Reading. I don't know why I did that. But things happen for a reason. Yeah. And then I had the job at Kilmarnock, which went very well. And then I've, I've had the national team job. So I haven't had, I haven't had too many... But in an age interviews. where you hear about managers sort of coming up with really slick PowerPoint presentations and being able to speak the lingo of uh, the sort of, of the values of a club and things like that, for you to be almost anachronistic by just coming in and being yourself, do you feel that that puts you at a disadvantage? No. I think if you can sell yourself, you've got a better chance than some flashy presentation that somebody else has prepared and you're presenting. If you want me to do the job, I can do the job. If you don't want me to do the job, thanks very much. I'll try somewhere else. So Sir Alex Ferguson had famously advised coaches that don't pick the club, pick the owner. So when you're going into these meetings and you're being yourself, how do you determine whether the owner is somebody that you're going to work with? That was something that you learn. Uh, I went to the first one, obviously I spoke to Dan a lot. I knew the chairman, Jeremy, Jeremy Peace, uh, Good man, uh, but brutal when it came to decisions. But ran a good ship. I knew it was a stable club, uh, British-owned. Roy had been in before me, Roy Hodgson, done a great job. So I knew I was, uh, I was quite fortunate with the West Brom job because Roy obviously had been headhunted to take the, the English national team job, which meant that I wasn't going into a struggling team. I was going into a team that had been pretty successful and, and was quite stable. And we managed to tweak it a little bit and do well. The Reading job was, was surreal how I got it because I was lying on the beach and, and I don't lie on the beach very often. I'm for, I'm for Ayrshire. <laughs> I was lying on the beach in the Caribbean somewhere, me and my wife, just before Christmas. We decided to get away because I was out of work. I thought I'd catch a bit of sun. I got a phone call from an agent, quite a well-known agent. He said, do you want the, the Reading job? I said, no, no, Nigel, Nigel Adkins is there. Uh, I'm not going to speak to anybody when there's a manager in position. He won't be in that position tomorrow, was what I was told. I said, okay, uh, I'm in the Caribbean, I'll be back. I think this was, in the, it was on the Saturday that Reading had just lost 6-0 at, six at Birmingham. Not back to Wednesday. No, no, that's not good enough. The job's yours if you want it. You need to be back Monday. I should have thought about it a little bit more. But I jumped on the plane, got back, did the deal, took the job, got in a couple of weeks in, I'm thinking, Ooh, 
Should have done a little bit more due diligence on this one. <laughs> but it lasted a year. And we got to the FA Cup semi-final, which was quite only the second time Reading had ever been there in, in their, their history. So that was, that was a little achievement. When you say small measures of success, that was a small measure of success. It was a great measure. And now it brings us up to the current day. And you've got the small matter of a couple of playoff games coming up. Yeah, can't wait. It's been a long break. Tell us, um, the crowd are confident. Tell us how you're feeling then ahead of, ahead of these two. That's good. Obviously, we finished the, the group stage very well. Six, six consecutive wins is tough to do. Two great nights at Hamden with a close call against Israel. We managed to nick a goal in the last minute and obviously the, the, the game against Denmark was, was a fantastic performance and a good night. And great for everyone. And, and you just feel there's a little positivity around with the, the following. The, the, the supporters of Tartan Army are getting excited, which is great because I know the players are excited for it. The players are looking forward to it. It's, it's going to be a tough game. Ukraine is, is a good team, really well organised. If I said that you look at the, the four teams ourselves, Ukraine, Wales, Austria, for me, is, is a 25% chance for everybody. We'll go there, we'll give our best. And hopefully we're best to be good enough. Would you just give us a, an insight into what your message will be for those players ahead of that, that period? Because it's about being up for it, but not being so up for it that emotion takes over and it negatively impacts the performance. Please, whatever you do, lads, when you go out in front of this full house at Hamden, the Tartan Army, they're there, they're there to support you. Go and play. Don't freeze. And I think if we do that, we can get through the first game. And then you have to go away, Wales or Russia. Bring it on. Brilliant. Bring it on. Uh, listen, we've had lots of questions in for you. So let's have a couple, of, uh, a couple of questions from the audience. And thank you all very much for your many questions. Um, and we'll just... Nice short answer, Steve. We'll just run through two or three of these if we can. Steve, what was the biggest challenge when building a team? Club football is uh, getting players, getting the right players. So your, your scouting system, uh, I think probably the most important department in a, any football club is your, is your scouting department because if you get good players, you've always got a chance. In the national team, I've probably talked through that process enough with the national team and how we, we shaped it and we, we changed and we tried to give this certain team, this group, uh, an identity and a way to play which is probably different for, for what, what they had done previously and it's been relatively successful. Can I ask a follow-up question on that, Steve? Like, if you had to give a percentage of, so when, you, like when you're making a judgment of bringing somebody into the squad, how much of it is based on their talent as a footballer and how much of it is on the personality and the characteristics as a person? Probably 90%, 10%. 90% the person? 90% the talent. Is it? See, other managers we've spoken to have said they would take the person over the ability, attitude over ability. You want the best players? Sometimes you've got to take some rascals to get the best ones. <laughs> nice. And, and then, have you have, then you have to deal with the rascals. <laughs> yes. That's a whole other conversation. Let's have another quick question from uh, someone in the room. Jamie says, being the manager of the national team, have you ever had a feeling of imposter syndrome? And if so, how did you overcome it? Good question. No. <laughs> <laughs> and a good answer. <laughs> uh, Last question then from the, uh, from the crowd in here this evening. Brett, I'm taking a team of 10-year-olds through to Murray Park to play against the Rangers Academy team tomorrow. 
What would your team talk be? Play your best. Play your best. Be organised. Enjoy yourself. Play your best. There you go. Those will be the final words ahead of the uh, ahead of the playoff games. I'm sure. What an interesting conversation, and it's so rare to hear a current manager talk so candidly and so honestly about the challenges in front of them and the future and the past. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much for giving up your evening in front of the crowd, ladies and gentlemen. Your manager, Steve Carr. Damien. Jake. It's a reminder, isn't it, that conversation, that you don't have to be a kind of over-the-top, show-off, look-at-me type of person to have yeah. success. Yeah, definitely. I think we get caught up, don't we, in this theory of that the leaders have to be extrovert, have to be charismatic, have to be loud. Whereas I think what Steve's demonstrating is sometimes that, that quiet leadership, the point he said is just be yourself. He's not trying to be anybody else. He's being a first-rate version of himself. And I, I think he does underplay the fact that he's clearly, and he wants to take no credit for it, he's, he's clearly had to do an awful lot of work on the psychology of the Scottish footballers to believe that they can play at a major tournament. Yeah, definitely. I, I spoke to Steve um, behind the scenes before and I was asking about how do you make a decision about some of the characters or some of the difficulties and his answer was you put the team first. Every time you put the team above any self-interest or any individual. And I think when you see it through that lens... Steve's decision-making, you start to be able to make sense of it and see the power of it. And I think the reason why he's happy to sit on a stage like this, which, by the way, a few weeks before a playoff game, I'm not sure very many managers would do that. I think the fact he's, he's happy to sit here and do this is because it isn't smoke and mirrors, it isn't tricks, it is just simply, here I am, Steve Clark, football manager, what you see is what you get. And it makes it so much easier for him to sit here and share that. Yeah, I think there's something really special about you know, where Steve grew up on the Ayrshire coast, that I don't think there's an awful lot of difference from the boy that went to Beecham's as an apprentice through to playing for Chelsea and the highs there to now being the national team manager. You, we're seeing him warts and all. So, what did you think? Um, that was us live on stage in Edinburgh, the first time that we've done one of these podcast episodes where you get to hear exactly what happens on the live show. I'd love you to just ping us a message and tell us whether you prefer it with the audience interaction, whether you think it takes something away from the podcast episodes, whether it was kind of just different. Um, so basically what you heard there was Damien and I speaking to the Scotland manager. And that was the second half of our live show. And we followed that up with a Q&A session. We did about 20 minutes on stage answering a lot of questions. You lot in Scotland are very inquisitive. And before that, for the first half of the show, we'd spent half an hour just talking about the podcast, showing some clips, discussing some of our big learnings. And then a guy called Ollie Patrick joined us on stage. Um, and he just spoke for about 10 minutes, really about well-being. And I can't tell you how much you need to think more carefully about the importance of well-being. In fact, having heard him talk, I'm, I may well be calling Ollie to ask if he wouldn't mind being my life coach because he talks about the fact that well-being has almost become like a luxury. Well-being is something that we're going to do in the future when everything is kind of okay. Um, and he has an amazing background. So he used to be involved in health screening and he used to have people, in, it's so interesting talking to him, people would come to him for a health screening and he'd look at them and think, well, we're checking you for diseases that you don't have any symptoms of. 
We're checking you for things you most likely don't have. But at the same time, you're telling us that you're stressed and you're burned out and you feel on the edge of a breakdown all the time and you're exhausted. But none of the things that we're measuring for these health checks are actually doing anything to change that. And our physiology has remained the same. The environment in which we live in has changed dramatically. So how we measure our own health has to change as well. So Ollie Patrick was brilliant. I'll tell you what I'll do, actually. I'll stick his, um, his, his talk up on the High Performance Circle. So if you're a member of the High Performance Circle, um, you'll get that talk. If you're not a member, all you need to do is very simple. Just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. Um, and you'll find the link there to the High Performance Circle. Put your email address in. You'll get an, an invite. Click accept and you're in the club. It really is as simple as that. So if you want to hear what Ollie spoke about, along with loads of other keynotes and exclusive podcasts and newsletters and offers and stuff, um, it might be a good time for you now to join the High Performance Circle. And can I just say thank you, everyone, for joining us in Edinburgh. I'm so sorry that the tickets have already sold for the O2 in London in March, where we're going to be, should I tell you? Yeah, um, yeah, we're going to be joined on stage by Vex King and Grace Beverly in London. It's going to be brilliant. Um, and then we've got a tour planned for the end of 2022. So I'm sorry to all of those people that couldn't get tickets for this tour. We're going again at the end of 2022. But listen, I'd love to hear what you thought about that episode recorded live in Edinburgh with Steve Clark. I wish Steve and the Scotland team all the very best in their playoff match for the World Cup. And um, get in touch with us right now at High Performance on Instagram, at Jake Humphrey, I'm on Instagram, or you'll find Damien Hughes is at Liquid Thinker. But have a brilliant day. Thank you very much for checking out our first ever live on stage podcast episode. Um, thank you to Hannah. Thank you to Will. Thank you to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio, to Gemma, to Eve, to the whole team at YMU who helped to make the live tours happen. And please, people, remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be your own biggest cheerleader. Make world-class basics your calling card. And remember, you deserve it. See you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.